The reading today is from Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 24, and that's on page 1182 of your church Bibles. page 1182, Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they might be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are, and how firm your faith in Christ is. This is God's word. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be back with you again this week. And uh, thank you, Phil, for stepping in last Sunday morning when I was uh, unwell. My name is Neil, part of the Christchurch family. Good to be with you today. Shall we pray together as we look at this uh, uh, passage before us today? Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Father in heaven, thank you for the lengths to which the Apostle Paul went, so that Christ may not only be made known, but that through his teaching, we might become fully mature in Christ. And would you give us, therefore, hearts and minds that are ready to receive from him? Might we be ready to be admonished and taught that we might be those who grow up to be fully mature in Jesus, loving him and one another. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, do have that passage open in front of you if you've closed the Bible, page 1182. And if you manage to pick up this order of service, you'll also have a few notes on the back there which will guide you through uh, this morning's sermon. We're in week three of this uh, series, looking at this short book of Colossians, and we're calling it Complete in Christ. And if you've been here for either of the first two Sundays, you'll know that the Apostle Paul is writing to a young church, 
a young group of believers that he's yet to meet personally. You see, they heard the good news through a man called Epaphras, uh, a fellow Colossian who was converted under Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. And it was Epaphras who brought the good news of Jesus uh, to them back home, that 80-mile or so trip from Ephesus through to Colossae in western Turkey. And he's writing to this group of Christians, as I say, that he's yet to meet, but whom he's heard all about and is greatly encouraged by the start they've made in the Christian life. In verses 3 to 5, he, he highlights those hallmarks of an authentic living faith, that of faith and love and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing to them in part to congratulate them on becoming followers of Jesus. He's praying for them. He's urging them on. He's not particularly trying to put anything right, but he does want to encourage them to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus Christ because there are others who no doubt will visit them soon if they've not visited them already who want them to take their eyes off Jesus and onto something else. And we'll see in chapter 2 next week exactly what kind of false teaching we're talking about, a religious heresy that went by the name of Gnosticism. And the idea with Gnosticism is that there were secret pathways and directions to a, a deeper, authentic experience of God than you could get from simply following Jesus. And this heresy would go on to trouble the church for a hundred years or more, even after Paul wrote this letter. And I guess what was attractive about it was that the message was something like, we can take your Christian life to a whole new level. A free, or perhaps not quite so free, upgrade. I mean, who doesn't want an upgrade? Every time you go to the airport, you're secretly hoping you might just get bumped up in the fate faint hope that they're going to take you from, I don't know, cattle class in the economy seats through to some kind of economy plus with a little bit more leg room. Or who knows, maybe you might even make it up to premium economy and slightly bigger seats and a bigger TV and real cutlery to use when you eat that food. You never know, perhaps you might even get from time to time to turn left when you board the plane and enjoy all the privileges of uh, the business class section, your own private little pod and uh, a glass of champagne to boot. And something like this was going on in the spirituality of the Gnostics. You know, there are upgrades. There's more to the Christian life and experience than Jesus. And Gnosticism was this sort of mystery religion that you relied upon a guru to take you to places you couldn't or wouldn't get to yourself. Who doesn't want a free upgrade? And throughout the history of the church, there have been from time to time people who've come along to shake the confidence of Christians, to suggest to them there's just that little something that you're missing out on that will get you beyond Jesus. And so Paul is wanting to prepare them for whatever form this kind of teaching might take so that they'll be ready, they'll be inoculated, they're just simply not going to buy in to the lies and the deceit of whatever the next heresy is in town. 
And the main way in which we've seen him preparing them is to show them the extraordinary, incomparable greatness of Jesus. That was chapter 1, verses 15 to 23 last week. If you see and understand and just taste who Jesus is, you'll know that you're complete and satisfied in him. We saw that he's supreme over everything in creation. He's made all of creation. He not only made it, but that he sustains and keeps everything going, including the breath that is now filling your lungs. And he's supreme over the new creation that is still to come. Jesus will rule and reign over his church for all eternity, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if Jesus is supreme, you'll quickly grasp that he's sufficient. I mean, what upgrade is there when you have Jesus? There's no one greater. Lord of creation, Lord of the new creation in Jesus, you're complete. You, you have it already. So having painted this majestic picture of Jesus, he's saying, don't move on, just go deeper in to realizing all the riches and the fullness that is yours in Jesus Christ. But they've yet to meet this man, Paul. And in one sense, I guess one of the other ways in which the authority of Paul might be subtly undermined if people start to point the finger, not just away from Jesus, but point the finger at this person, Paul. Well, who is this one who claims to know so much about God? And why should you listen to him? And so having painted the glorious picture of Jesus last week, he's now going to spend a few verses talking about himself so that they might be assured, reassured, growing confidence that Paul is the authentic messenger who represents Jesus to us and to the world. And you'll have noticed, if you were paying attention as it was read, that this section is almost from beginning to end about Paul. It's about who he is, having shown them who Jesus is. And he wants them and us to have full confidence that he bears witness not just to some truth about God, but to all the truth about God in Christ, and nothing but the truth about God in Christ. And you and I as Christians will be far less tempted to want to to move on from Jesus if we are really confident that In this book, the Bible, God has said all he needs to say to us about Jesus. That that there are no mysteries yet to be revealed that God intends to reveal to the church that isn't in these 66 books of the Bible, that hasn't been given to us by Jesus through the apostles for the church. That we can trust Paul and take him at his word. So he's going to tell us some things about himself. In chapter 2, verse 4, you see at the end of this little section we're looking at today, he says, why? 2, verse 4, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. 
Maybe they'll point, want to point you away from Jesus, or maybe they'll want to point you away from Jesus' words given to us by the apostles. There will be leaders who come along now and again who claim to have something new. I remember when I was a fairly young believer, there was a guy doing the rounds called the Jellyfish Man. And the Jellyfish Man was a man who had been stung by a box jellyfish that's capable of killing a human being. And having been stung, he then had some revelation of God, a picture of heaven and a picture of hell. He survived and has spent 30 years or more telling people his story about what he saw in heaven and what he saw about hell, having been stung by a jellyfish. Now, I don't know a great deal about him. I've never met him, never heard him speak. But I remember even then just how excited people were to think that they could go to a church to hear his story. That there was something in the story of the jellyfish man that, that might be worth hearing that they couldn't know from looking at the words of the apostles to his church. And so whether it's the jellyfish man or someone who claims to have uh, had a particular blessing or signs and wonders, special revelation and wisdom, I think God's people continue to be quite prone to the thought, oh, is there something more? Has God got something to say to me that he's not already said? And so Paul is going to show us that uh, he is the authentic minister with an authentic ministry. And that's what we'll look at uh, this morning. So three headings on the sheets. Firstly, an authentic minister, chapter 1 and uh, verse 24. Well, where does Paul start Now I rejoice in what I am suffering. He doesn't start with uh, his uh, theology degrees. He doesn't start with his supernatural experiences, his signs and wonders. He doesn't talk about his heritage or pedigree as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He starts, verse 24, I rejoice in what I am suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. It's quite a startling way to introduce yourself, isn't it, to a group of Christians that you haven't met? It's quite an odd way to start. Paul's actually writing this whole letter, you see, from a prison cell. Just uh, turn over to chapter 4. And verse 3, and you'll see he writes, pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. And then in verse 18, he goes on, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, remember my chains. Grace be with you. So I guess the question is, which gives you more confidence? Someone who claims to have done miracles, for example, or someone in prison for the gospel. Can the Colossians have confidence in a man who outwardly looks so unimpressive? I mean, if he's the authentic minister, what's he doing 
in jail. Well, Paul thinks it's exactly this that qualifies him. That he's embracing suffering for the sake of the church. He says that's exactly the Jesus-like thing to boast about. Suffering for the sake of others hearing and believing in Jesus Christ. I mean, think about the example of Jesus himself to us. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 to 3 says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a dry and a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Maybe you remember those earliest disciples, Nathaniel and Philip, and Nathaniel goes to his uh, can't quite believe the words of his brother Philip at the beginning of John's gospel. Can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, there was nothing impressive about the Savior of the world when he came. Familiar with sufferings, he was despised. And now Paul, as he tries to show the Colossians that he's an authentic minister of the gospel starts where Jesus left off. Now, I rejoice in what I am suffering. I wonder if we go looking for something outwardly impressive, whether we might miss the gospel altogether. Uh, I pastored a church in Birmingham for about 20, just over 20 years, and uh, I, want, I used to ride around Birmingham on a bright, shiny, red Vespa moped. I love my Vespa moped. Uh, until one day I, I came off it and uh, had to have 14 stitches in my knee, which is very painful. And for a number of weeks, I was on crutches. But I didn't want to stop uh, preaching, so uh, due to preach, I uh, hobbled up to the front on my crutches and leant on the edge of a bar stool because I couldn't really stand and use my hands. I leant on this stool and preached from the stool, uh, so to speak. But at the end of the service, one lady in our congregation said to me, Pastor, she said, we can't see you this way. It's not right. And in her culture, I think it was thought to be improper for someone in a position of authority to look weak and foolish. The two things just didn't go together in her estimation. To see a pastor on crutches just seemed altogether wrong. And yet this is where Paul says authentic gospel ministry starts. He's commissioned by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and he can say, verse 24, I'm suffering for you. And you notice Paul doesn't uh, say he's just, well, I'm suffering a little bit like Jesus. He says, verse 24, I'm filling up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's 
afflictions. So he's sort of saying, I'm sharing in some way in the sufferings of Jesus. I'm not merely being like Jesus, I'm actually sharing his sufferings. What is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction, verse 24. Now, I'll be honest and say this is a really difficult verse. And lots of commentators uh, argue as to what's going on. I refer you to, to Phil Orcock at the end of the service for any particular questions that you may have. What does Paul mean, I share in Jesus' sufferings? Well, we know one thing he can't be saying. He can't mean my sufferings are somehow making up for the inadequacy of Jesus' sufferings for us, as if the death of Jesus didn't pay for it all. He can't mean that, can he? We know that already because he's been rejoicing over the fact that God has already, chapter 1, verse 12, qualified us. Verse 13, we've already experienced God's full rescue. 1 verse 23, we know that we are those who have been reconciled. Verse 22, we've been reconciled by Christ's physical body. No, Jesus really has done everything that is necessary for you and I to be in a right relationship with God through his perfect death on the cross once for all. So when Paul says, I share in Christ's sufferings, he can't mean I'm topping them up or somehow making up for their inadequacy. But I think what he means is that Jesus, through the church, will continue to experience suffering right up until the time when the Lord Jesus comes and puts this broken world order to an end and establishes his forever reign. And it's the church that is suffering now. And there are one or two verses in the New Testament that seem to suggest that there's a, a fixed amount of suffering that, that the Lord is going to allow the church to endure before Jesus comes again. And we don't know what that is, but it's kind of a, a fixed amount. And then God's going to say, now is the time, that is it, it's enough. The witness of the church, for me, is complete, and Jesus will return. So there'll be a fixed amount of suffering the church will endure in human history. And maybe what Paul is saying is, well, I'm filling up my fair share of that suffering. I'm going to take a full hit. You know, I'm not avoiding the suffering that the church is going to experience. I'm going to take my share and some as an authentic gospel witness to Jesus Christ. Maybe that's what he means when he says he's filling up what is still lacking. That's the, the best that I think I can do. But what I do know is that Paul says my suffering is the marker of an authentic gospel ministry. The message of Jesus, wherever it went, wherever it goes, leads to great offense and almost always opposition. Because remember, the message of Jesus says to the whole world, look, it doesn't matter how good you think you are. It doesn't matter how religious you've been in your life. It doesn't matter that other people are worse than you are and have done worse things than you have done. There is nothing that you can bring to God 
to merit his righteousness. Every one of us are in that same boat. There is no one righteous, Paul says, not even one. So wherever you take that message around the world, that is going to put people's noses out of joint. And opposition and suffering, no doubt, will come. When people hear there's only one way to be right with God and it's nothing that you bring, but it's through repentance and faith, trusting Jesus Christ and his death alone. Uh, keep a thumb in Colossians and just, would you turn back a, a couple of pages to Acts chapter 20 and page 1117? What Paul knows is if I'm really faithful to the message of Jesus, I will suffer because the world will hate me for that message. Acts chapter 20 and verses 22 to 24 page 1117, and now Paul says, saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He says, and now compelled by the Spirit, verse 22, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me. I only know that in town after town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions await me. But I consider my life of no value to me If only I may finish my course and complete the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus, the ministry of testifying to the good news of God's grace. All I know is the Holy Spirit warns me chains and afflictions await me. Jesus suffered for the church. And Paul says, in a sense, that's the marker of an authentic servant of Jesus. So he can say, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. Well, from an authentic minister to an authentic ministry in verses 25 to 29, I'm going to move a little bit more quickly through this. What makes his ministry authentic? Well, it's firstly that it was given to him by God. It's a divine commission. Do you see that in verse 25? I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Paul received his commissioning on the Damascus Road. We read about that, don't we, in the book of Acts. And the commission is not just to say something true about God. Do you notice there, verse 25? The commission is to present the word of God in all its fullness. Paul's going to leave nothing out. Everything that you and I need to know to be perfect in Christ will be found in him. That's the most liberating truth, isn't it, for us as Christians? That everything that God wants to say to you and to me, he said here in the Bible because Paul has given us the word in all its fullness. There are no nasty surprises things that no one told you about, something that God's going to reveal tomorrow, it's given to you in this book. The book of life, the word of God in all its fullness. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. Our role as the church is simply to pass it on, isn't it? That's our role, to take it to heart, to learn it, and to pass it on, the apostolic witness. And of course, this gospel can be summarized as Christ in you, the hope 
of glory. So it's a divine commission, and of course, it's a divine message, verse 28. All that Paul is ever going to talk about is Jesus. Verse 28, he is the one we proclaim. That's the hallmark of an authentic ministry. Is, Is this person talking to me about Jesus? Is that what they want me to know? Is that the person they want me to know? Him we proclaim, verse 28, warning and teaching with all wisdom to present everyone mature in Christ. I think that's an amazing mission statement for a church. Don't you? Him we proclaim. Why? To present everyone perfect in Christ. I mean, bums on seats, that's really nice to see a full church. That's, that's, that's a great start. I love hearing stories of, of people coming to faith and witnessing that through their baptisms. But the ultimate goal is everyone mature in Christ. That's why we're here Sunday by Sunday. Everyone mature in Christ. And Paul says that means a degree of warnings and a degree of teachings. We're not just at church to hear what we want to hear, but what God is saying to us through his apostles. We need the warnings too sometimes, don't we? I hope you've come as ready to let the Lord challenge you today as well as to encourage you. And and all wisdom will mean a church that's seeking to equip us to, to live wisely and well with every part of our lives, how we spend our money or how we raise our children and do our work. A lot of this is going to come out in chapters 3 and 4 as Paul applies some of this to us, how the gospel makes us mature in Christ. All sorts of ministries, they can't all be done in a sermon on a Sunday morning. Specialist ministries, one-to-ones and midweek groups and so on. Everyone mature in Christ. That's Paul's goals. That's what ministry is from beginning to end. C.S. Lewis, just a month before he passed away, wrote in reply to a young girl, he said, Dear Ruth, many thanks for your kind letter. And it was very good of you to write and tell me that you like my books. And what a very good letter you write for your age. If you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you. And I hope that you may always do so. Isn't that lovely little letter from C.S. Lewis to a, a young Christian girl? Love Jesus and nothing much can go wrong because we are complete in him. A divine commission. God is the one who's called him to this. It's a divine message. It's all about Jesus from beginning to end to present everyone fully mature in Christ. And it's done in God's strength, verse 29. Do you see that? I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works in me. Even though Paul is in chains, nothing is going to stop him completing this divine commission. But man, does he need God's enabling power to do that. I labor, I struggle but it's his energy and his energy alone that can keep me working and suffering from him. 
he can say all the way along, it was God in me. And I could never have done this alone. So an authentic ministry involves suffering. An authentic ministry involves bringing Christ in all his fullness in the power of the Holy Spirit. And very briefly, an authentic ambition, verses two, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I love the thought that Paul is laboring for Christians he's yet to meet. Do you notice that, verse 1? I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those in Laodicea, another little town nearby, and for all who have not met me personally. Paul's passion is the supremacy of Christ, that it should be known and experienced and lived everywhere around the world. And he's working for the gospel around the world. It's his all-consuming passion. Whether he ever meets them in this life or not, he's going to pour his life out in their service. It's an odd thing, isn't it? If as Christians, it's not our passion to love in this way. Matthew Paris once wrote a famous piece for the newspaper, The Times, that read as follows, the New Testament offers a picture of God which doesn't sound at all vague. He sent his son to earth. He's an atheist, by the way. He sent his son to earth. He has distinct plans for each of us personally and can communicate directly with us. We're capable of forming a direct relationship individually with him and are commanded to try. We're told that this can be done only through his son and we're offered the prospect of eternal life, an afterlife in happy, blissful and glorious circumstances if we live this life in a certain manner. So he's tried as best as he understands it to summarize the gospel. And then this atheist says, Friends, if I believe that, or a tenth of that, how could I care which version of the prayer book is used? I would drop my job, sell my house, throw away all my possessions, leave my acquaintances, and set out into the world burning with desire to know more, and when I had found out more, to act upon it and tell others. Far from being puzzled that Mormons and Adventists should knock on the door, I am unable to understand how anyone who believes that which is written in the Bible could choose to spend their waking hours in any other endeavor. A burning passion. This Jesus, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, requires this response from the Apostle Paul in chapter 1, verse 24, to chapter 2, verse 5. He's an authentic minister with an authentic ministry, an authentic, all-consuming, burning passion for the Colossians and for others who as yet don't, haven't met him. No wonder they can put their trust and confidence in Paul and his words as we can too this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for 
this extraordinary example of a suffering servant in the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the way he labored for those he had yet to meet. And thank you for his faithfulness to you right through to the end. Thank you, we read in the words that you have caused to be written of his example. And may we follow in his footsteps. In Jesus' name, amen.